Welcome to the Cellular Cinema Podcast. This week we'll be talking to artist Roger Beebe about three of his films, Amazonia, Lineage for Norman McLaren, and his classic Strip Mall Trilogy. If you'd like to support this podcast and the artists that we feature, uh, please subscribe at Patreon backslash Cellular Cinema. Thank you. Thank you so much, Roger, for being willing to join us. Uh, it's really nice. It's it's actually worked out really beautifully to have this opportunity to talk to a few people that probably normally wouldn't be available or um, would be potentially averse to using this technology like I was until two weeks ago. Um, and thanks too for sharing the three films, or you shared more than three actually. Um, and so I have some questions, like I, I, I don't feel a need to be super prescriptive about the direction that the conversation goes, but, um, but I do have some, some direction for us uh, if we decide to go that way. And the, the place I wanted to start actually is um, when you were here um, for the film festival, like, I don't know, five years ago, uh, we, we were talking about medium and um and whether the medium is the message and uh you described yourself as um promiscuous regarding medium uh medium promiscuous and uh i that has always stuck with me as a great i don't know a great self description and i think in the in the films that you shared with us i mean that's evidence already kind of working across different sets of tools and um and different kind of exhibition formats. Um, so as we kind of get into the specific films, is there anything you can say about how you think about choice of medium or like how, you know, I, I feel like there's a certain amount of pressure to kind of stick with one perhaps in the, in the art world or, or to kind of focus in one area. And I really appreciate how you've, um, been so promiscuous. Uh, so um, I don't know, can you say anything about that medium question just to get us started? Sure, yeah, I guess at some point I should probably stop using the word promiscuous to describe myself. But um, no, I, my, my practice does, like I, I am interested in, um, you know, in, in figuring out what different media can do, what different modes of making, what they feel like. Um, you know, partially it, it, it enables you to work with whatever tools are near to hand. You know, I think that there's a flexibility to that. I don't need a dark room. I don't need 16 projectors. I don't need, you know, it's great when you have those, but not feeling like it's a constraint when you don't. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of my summers in places other than my home base. And so it has been really important. Or for, you know, I did a residency at the Headland Center last year, you know, and I did drive out there because I wanted to do some work on film and brought four projectors with me um, and made a piece that you know that uses all four projectors and um, which is I guess one of the ones you saw um, but yeah I, um, I like working in different ways I think they exercise my brain differently so while I'm sort of promiscuous across media I also want to be really specific with how I use each one right like I'm not promiscuous in the sense of like that choice is really 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 thoughtful right like it's really meaningful whether it's shot on super eight whether it's you know, shot on Super 8 and finished to video, whether it's, you know, born as a 
cell phone video, you know, whatever format you use, it seems like it's so, so critical to think it out. Um, and yeah, we can talk about it specifically in relationship to some of the films at, you know, at some point in this conversation if you want to. Um, but it, it maybe sort of very specifically with Amazonia, because it's one of the ones where it kind of crosses those borders. You know, I had originally just been shooting that Super 8 film and it felt like it was, um, it felt like it wasn't working. I, I had to, it was, I had a really long period of developing that film. And it was, it was because I think, I don't know, the film, shooting on film just felt fetishistic or nostalgic or something. But then putting that into conversation with these kind of digital artifacts and through the, through the interface of the desktop really solved that and, and made this conversation about the difference between the virtual and the physical um, really important. You know, that this sort of encounter with the physical space in a medium that is itself, you know, physical. I mean, film is three-dimensional. The grains are like different directions on the surface of the, of the film and the emulsion. And um, so, yeah, it, it felt like then those media really kind of reinforced a lot of the stuff that I was thinking about thematically in that piece, rather than just being like choices because like film grain is pretty or whatever. So, um, yeah, that's that kind of concrete example of, of how that kind of ability to kind of move, you know, from film to video, um, you know, seemed really important and solved some problems for me. We don't, um, it seems kind of rare that we get to hear about um, what you just described about getting stuck in the middle of a process or like starting something and then feeling like it's not working and then having to kind of grapple with that and figure out how to get unstuck again. Um, is there more to say about that in that in the for that film specifically or or if you want to apply it to another film like i think that's always a really interesting part of the conversation that often gets kind of glossed over yeah i think there are kind of two things i can say about it i mean one is specific to that film and i think it's really that that film started with an idea rather than an image i i sometimes feel like um that's the wrong way it's backwards like the idea should grow out of the images, right? That um, I, there's this quote that I have cribbed from a former colleague and it's uh, Stefan Mallarmé and, uh, and Edgar Degas are having a conversation and Degas, right, the painter says to Mallarmé, the poet, um, I really think I should write poetry because I have so many great ideas. And Mallarmé says, my dear Stefan, poems are made of words, not of ideas. You know, and so I think that um, with Amazonia, it was a great, like, one-line description. It was a great grant proposal, but then I didn't know what the images were. I didn't know how to build that out of, like, concrete observations of the world. Um, and so I started that kind of backwards and then had to find the right form and the right images. And so I think in that project, like, me getting stalled out was about proceeding in a way that I don't normally proceed. I usually actually do have some real concrete thing to sink my teeth into as opposed to kind of general and vague kind of theoretical concept. Um, the other thing to say is just that I, I do have the luxury of having a tenured job. And so I am allowed to let these things kind of slow boil. Um, 
but I think it's been really beneficial where I can collect and collect and collect and, and you know that I have this thing that eventually I'll get to. Um, and then suddenly there's a critical mass or just a window of time opens up where like it moves to the front burner. I think I've m mixed the cooking metaphors already, mm -hmm. but, um, yeah, but then it's just exciting to have two weeks at a residency or something and just like really dive into it, start throwing stuff into a timeline, seeing what you have, what you need to fill the gaps, what order these things seem to suggest. Um, and so, yeah, like, I think that's a real luxury. And I think it's really benefited a lot of my recent films where, um, yeah, things can take a decade or longer where, you know, I kind of wish I had made the Amazon film earlier because I feel like Amazon has just become more and more important culturally. And I feel like I could have been way, way out in front of the curve <laughs> if I had been able to push this out and say it in the way. But I also feel like, you know, it came at the time it needed to come and it feels, you know, like it, like it benefited from, from having a lot of time to think about how it, how it would work and to go back multiple times to the cities and collect different kinds of things on the second and third visits. And yeah. It, um, it has something in common for me, that film with, um, we talked to Travis Wilkerson a few weeks ago and yeah. the films that he shared, one of the interesting things about the films that he shared were, were that they were kind of unphotographable, like, um, you know, so like he wanted to tell the story of an event that happened 50 years ago of which there is no physical record, you know, for example. And so it's like, well, how do you make a documentary about something that you can't shoot, uh, that you can't actually capture visually with a camera? And I think Amazonia has a kind of a similar struggle maybe, but that's part of what makes it interesting is that like you're, uh, photographing the internet is, uh, you know, the internet is, is maybe not photographable or like it presents that same problem of like, what does it actually look like? You know, I mean, you know, for sure. There's the question of abstraction or, or this sort of, um, yeah, this, this, this sort of that we have a kind of conceptual idea of it, but, but yeah, how do you represent that thing? I mean, I do think that book, um, that book tubes is kind of interesting and in thinking about the physical stuff of the internet, you know, of, of just cables under the ocean and stuff. I mean, I think that's another thing to, to, to think about. And I do think that I've seen examples where they try to kind of literalize that stuff. But again, like for me, ultimately it's like the living relationships in it rather than, than, than just like some, you know, some servers or whatever, like, it, it seems to me more important to say, how is this thing, the connective tissue that's binding us right now, right? Um, and yeah, the other kind of unrepresentable hole in the middle of the film is the interior of the warehouses, right? Where they just weren't gonna let me in. Um, and that was, I think that was part of the challenge too and in, in why it took me a long time to get somewhere with it. But I think in the end, like, I don't know, it pushed me to think in a kind of bigger way. Like I could have just made a simple thing about labor and about the shop floor in one of those distribution centers if I had gotten that kind of access. And I've seen other films, like a former student, Warren Cockerham, made a really um, amazing thing inside of a, 
inside of a Walmart distribution center where he had worked for years. Um, and he um, actually just put a camera inside of a box and gave it a ride on the conveyor belt through the place. And you get the entire sense of the scope of the place. And um, it's a really nice video. But yeah, it's a thing I didn't, I just didn't have that access. And so figuring out how to represent, like you say, represent the un uh, unrepresentable. I mean, for Travis, yeah, it is an injury to one. It's, you know, a, a, you know, the murder of a labor activist a hundred years ago or whatever. But um, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of filmmakers face those challenges, right? Um, and uh, and solve these riddles in very in singular ways. Yeah, well, and I think it's it's a it's um, seeing how people solve that is is inspiring to me. Um, and you know, and and I said this, I think, when we talked to Travis too. Like, it's more relevant than ever. Like. Uh, just right right now with the the very specific set of limitations that we're dealing with like you know uh it, it's what very it's, Sorry. Yeah. It, it's just it's very tempting to to say you know i want to make a movie about blank but i can't because i'm stuck in my house or whatever sure. yeah but i was also going to say all the things that were just not a, a given access to you know i was thinking about um, is it Trevor Paglin who did those photographs of the dark sites where you barely make them out? They're almost abstract. They're from, you know, as far away as he's forced to be when taking them. Um, but uh, yeah, I guess I, I'm also sort of like, it's the opposite of something like Citizen Four, which I found totally amazing just because of like, you are there while history is unfolding. And that is a different kind of amazing, right? Like, the the filmmakers who are able to be present but i think you're right in our moment i mean every every podcast i listen to every whatever they're sort of apologizing for their inability to do reporting in the kind of old-fashioned way right now um and so it is a really interesting moment um, mm -hmm. well and i think i i feel like there's a connection um it's uh, it, it's not kind of like a one-to-one -one relationship but um so going back to Strip Mall, to the Strip Mall trilogy, um, it, a similar question is like, there's nothing to photograph here, right? Or like the idea of like, this is, this is totally banal and ugly and not um, visually interesting, you know, would be the, like when I look at a strip mall, I'm not excited to shoot footage of the strip mall. And so, so that, some version of that same struggle or question of like, well, how do I represent this in a way that means something? Um, feels I have like to it's say there. though, yeah, but I have to say that I actually feel the opposite. I feel like embarrassed about taking photographs or of things that are photographable. Uh -huh. It feels like, you know, like when I get, when I was in Cuba, I made a rule for myself that I wasn't going to photograph old cars or beautiful colonial buildings. So my rule was I would pull my cell phone out of my pocket and take the picture while pulling it out <laughs> so that I was getting all sorts of like, here's like the crack in the ground or this is crazy blur or, and it felt more exciting to me than like just reproducing, you know, tourist postcards. Um, you know, and same, like, I, I mean, I spent a big chunk of my day outside today, like, digging up the ground and, you know, getting ready to plant some spring planting. But I, I, until very, very recently, um, had not found a way to represent my 
like stupid attraction to flowers or whatever <laughs> in my filmmaking. And so it does feel like somehow there's, for me, the tension about it not being a good photographic subject is kind of what has drawn me to it, to a lot of these things, these sort of degraded landscapes. Um, yeah, that like I, it feels like there's more for me to do kind of intellectually rather than just pointing at a thing and saying, isn't it beautiful? You know, I taught, I taught in Paris for a semester and I was teaching a super eight class and, um, and my students were making really great, smart things. And I, I didn't shoot anything all semester long. And then at the very end, I was like, fuck it, I have to shoot something. And uh, I went down to the Eiffel Tower and I intentionally shot everything pointing away from the Eiffel Tower, basically, or you would see the Eiffel Tower in the background, but there'd be some kid playing in a sandbox in the foreground or something. And that was the closest I could come because Paris is just, it's such, it's so photographable that like, I was like, where's my strip mall, you know? <laughs> There's the, the outskirts of Paris. For sure. Might, might suit you. <laughs> Um, but not really, right? Like, I don't want to live in it. I just, when I, when I think about making work, it's like the ideas that I have feel kind of like, there's a specific kind of American tension about um, you growing up in a certain era of these degraded landscapes and, and yeah, wanting to make some kind of sense of them um, and feeling, feeling a little bit embarrassed about beauty or feeling a little bit embarrassed about just, you know, um, try, I'm trying to get over it. I uh, I have a similar, um, I can't figure out how to make movies right now because I have small children. And so it's like uh, how to not just take, you know, family photos or shoot, shoot dad videos like that. Well, there, there are some great examples of people who've made wonderful work with their kids. You know, Alenka Clayton, I don't know if you know her. She's a, no. a video artist based in Pittsburgh. Um, British but has been in Pittsburgh for a long time now um, she's got uh, um, I, th I think she may just have one child um, but she made this really incredible series of videos called the farthest distance I can be from my son or something I think that's what they're <laughs> called and so she stands behind the camera just it's locked down on a tripod and she just lets her kid wander off into these different landscapes and then she like cuts the video when she she runs in panic to go collect her child <laughs> who's disappeared around a corner or into the woods or, and yeah, I just think they're really, they're really great ways of like, yeah, of using that and not just, of not just doing like my kids are cute, right? You know, of, of creating a kind of real artistic constraint. Um, I think, I, I mean, she's, her work in general, I'm just such a huge admirer, but, um, but those videos, I think, are a real model for people who are trying to figure out how to, like you said, not make dad videos, you know. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll have to get that. Yeah, could you, if you have the oh, chat Oh, yes, here, I'll add it to the uh, chat here. Right, yeah. Um, yeah, please go watch her films. Um, she has a series called People in Order to You that I just really, really love. Um, but yeah, she's got almost, I think all the stuff is available on, on Vimeo. Um, yeah, she's the greatest. Um, you actually mentioned, uh, I wonder if, if you're willing to take us way back. Like I realized I, um, my knowledge of you starts with you in Florida. And so I don't know like where you grew up or how you started making movies or anything like that. 
um, if you'd be willing to give us the the brief. I thought I thought going back to two thousand and one was going to be was going to be a lot. That's that's a lifetime for I think some of the people who are looking at, yeah, at this well, video today. And you can say no. You could say like, yeah, let's just start with two thousand one, which is totally no. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, it's it's not super interesting. Maybe um, I was born in Philadelphia, but I moved to South Carolina when I was seven. Um, spent ten years there, and then went to Amherst College. Uh, lived in France for a year on a fellowship after that, and then went to Duke for grad school for a PhD in Marxist critical theory. Um, but so while I was living in Paris before I went to grad school, uh, I was working as a projectionist at a cine club at the school that I had a fellowship at. And I was basically watching three movies a day because as a projectionist, I got in for free to all these movie theaters. And Paris is just like, the cinephile capital of the world where you could see like, you know, over the course of the year, I think I saw every John Ford movie on 35 millimeter in a theater. Um, it was really incredible. And so as a projectionist, I had kind of like um, professional, whatever they call that professional courtesy at other theaters there. So I could get in for free or for, for almost free. And so just, yeah, spent a year doing that. And I think that laid the foundation. I mean, I hadn't seen a ton of experimental film at that point. I know I saw one program and it kind of freaked me out and I had no idea what it was. I saw Tony Conrad's The Flicker. I saw Michael Snow's Back and Forth. And I was just like, I don't know if I like this, but it definitely was stuck in my brain in a way that a lot of the Fritz Lang films or whatever that I saw maybe didn't, where I'm like, I can't remember if I saw, you know, I can't even spout out the titles anymore. <laughs> mm -hmm. I like Fritz Lang, but yeah, no, but um, some of those like American films kind of blur together a little bit for me. Um, so anyway, so that planted the seed or gave some kind of foundation. I got really into Godard. And so when I got to grad school, my first films, while I was pursuing my degree, I was also able to take a couple filmmaking classes, or one filmmaking class, and then do, some, do an independent study. And then got involved with the undergrad, the mostly undergrad um, filmmaking group at Duke um, that had enough money for me to kind of burn camp, Burn, burn stuff through the camera and figure out what I was doing. And then I started, I, then I took over Flickr. At, um, Norwood Cheek uh, had founded a festival in Chapel Hill that was dedicated to work on celluloid and Super 8 and 16. And so he invited me when he was moving out to California um, to kind of take it over. At first I was helping him run it remotely and then he just asked if I would be interested in taking it over. And so, um, yeah, it was just kind of logical steps or sort of baby steps to get me kind of deeper and deeper. But it really was when I moved to Florida that I kind of found my idiom, I think. Um, and it was partially about actually not having the money from Duke anymore. You know, I was spending 2000 or $3,000 on these films. And that's a lot of money. And, you know, if somebody else is writing the checks, then it felt like, okay, well, you know, and I had access to like, I had a dolly and tracks and so I literally, you know, like the film I made in 1999, I had this tracking shot through the woods and, you know, probably spent, you know, spent half a day just to get these three shots, you know. And when I got down to Florida, I didn't have friends and I didn't have gear and I didn't have money and just really wanted to kind of simplify things and make things as cheap as possible and as direct as possible. And so the Strip Mall Trilogy is really the film that marks that break. And, you know, I mean, I think that film cost me, you know, I mean, maybe it cost me $150 to make, um, including the transfers. And, um, and yeah, it was, it was made on a camera that I bought secondhand and that camera maybe cost a hundred bucks too. 
Um, and it was just me in the world, you know, and it was like a really kind of transformative experience. And so I think that really did launch the next or the last 20 years of my filmmaking was, was having that disruption and actually this privation of like not having access to a budget and to a filmmaking group of people who would hold boom poles for me and stuff like that. Was that more, was that more detail than you wanted? No, that's perfect. That's perfect. Um, did you find, so I'm just trying to think about what direction I want to go talking about that film. Um, did you find experimental film people in Florida or were, did you feel like you were kind of doing it all by yourself while you were there? I mean, I, I had colleagues who were really interested in experimental film. Uh, Maureen Turham and Scott Nigren were both at Florida when I was hired there. And yeah, they'd been both uh, engaged with experimental film for decades before I got there. And before, I, before I'd seen experimental films, they were actually writing about them. So yeah, it was a nice place to land in terms of having a, you know, um, a, a small but like really in, engaged um, group of people. And then through the school program, I kind of created, um, you know, a kind of community of people who were either in school or had recently graduated, you know, and then in 2004, I founded um, FlexFest, the Florida Experimental Film Video Festival. And so that really did kind of, um, that became the kind of center of that community there. I mean, there's a lot of turnover because there were no jobs in Gainesville. And so there's no reason to stay around too much longer after school was done. But, um, but there were enough people rotating through who kind of got the bug and got interested and got engaged with the festival and, you know, were taking my classes and um, yeah. Um, but, but it was, it did feel a little bit like an Island, like the entire state of Florida, I guess, felt a little far removed from the traditional centers of experimental film. And you, so I do have like a process question about strip mall trilogy. Like, um, like I, it makes a lot of sense to me what you're saying about it being this kind of direct experience. It's you and the camera and the, the, you're, you're out there. Um, do you, I, I was curious watching it, how kind of planned it was versus how improvised, um, how you kind of approached it. Um, yeah. And also how, how both shooting it and also like, is it edited? How edited is it? Those kinds of questions. Can you tell us a little bit about making of? For sure. Yeah. So um, it's mostly edited in camera. Um, like I move titles around and the second part, if you actually ever saw me do this in person, I would show the first and third parts in film and the second part I would show in video. Um, and the second part is in video because I actually slowed it down 50% because I wanted to give the little girl who is now, she's graduated from college and um, out in the world. But uh, she, uh, she was just so amazing as a performer that I wanted to give her twice as much space to do her thing. Um, I think it also helps too when that section is slowed down. It gives you the rhythm that moves us from part one to part three. Like you start to feel it even in the single frame stuff that there's like, that, that it's not quite that frenetic, chaotic first part. So in terms of um, like pre-planning, yeah, I did pre-plan it. Um, 
and did um, mostly then have it, um, you know, shot. What you see is what I shot, right? It's edited in camera. Um, I say that, but like I say, you know, my planning, like part of I think my virtue in that film is that I'm not very good at sticking to my plans or I get bored with my plans pretty quickly. And so I kind of innovated while I was out there. So like the, the sections where I'm like rotating around stuff, um, that was kind of because I was just sick of just saying, I'm collecting a blue thing, I'm collecting a green thing, whatever. <laughs> and I wanted to figure out some other games to play, some other things I could do that would, you know, like just be more surprising or, you know, um, just get more dynamic and less just like sticking to a plan. I think there's some really amazing formalist filmmakers who really do want to um, stick to a plan. And I am an, an admirer of so many of those people's work, but I am just not temperamentally cut out for that. So, um, yeah. So uh, that kind of tension between really having it thought out and planned out and then knowing that I'm going to get bored and allow myself to kind of experiment or play. Um, so I'm not just executing a thing that I drew out on graph paper, you know, a week before and, um, yeah. Um, so it's interesting, like, it sounds like, uh, that was the first thing that you made that way and it turned out really great and, uh, was well loved and, and circulated widely. Like, uh, um, is that, the, is that, is that true? Am I getting that right? I mean, the trajectory of my, yeah, of my filmmaking, like the first, really the first four or five years that I was making films, like they were playing around a little bit. And I would, you know, I think, you know, everyone used to sort of make these first tentative steps and you maybe send it to the wrong festivals where they were, there was no chance they were going to ever show it. And, um, and then you feel like real sad because three festivals in a row rejected you and then you stop sending it out. And, Anyway, so yeah, um, I had four or five years of that before Strip Mall Trilogy did really kind of find a place in the world in a really different way. And um, no, and it felt great. It was really great um, to have the world respond in that way. And um, yeah, um, in some ways, it, I guess it's still my most successful film. I think it's, you know, Maybe that and TBTX Dance are the films that have screened the most. Um, but it's weird because I also have stopped mostly sending to festivals and haven't been trying to exhibit in the same way. And I've been doing much more the sort of in-person multi-projector performance stuff. Um, and so it's, it's, it's sort of a different kind of, like those films could never catch fire in that way because they're not circulatable in any way other than me dragging 200 pounds of gear in my Prius to, to wherever you are. Mm -hmm. I know that drive to, to, um, to Minneapolis actually almost killed me. I got the flu on the way back. I drove 11 and a half hours through the night. Uh, and had to teach class that the next day, but, uh, it, it's, 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 it's the path I've kind of carved out for myself the last, you know, 10, 12 years or so. Yeah. And so, and actually that's, that's a, thank you for the easy segue. Uh, so, um, we watched, I, I, I passed along the excerpts from sound film. Um, 
am, am I, what's the full title of that one? I want to make yeah, sure. Just sound film. Sound yeah, just film. Yeah. Um, so I don't know, what was the first kind of multi-projector performance that you did? And I, can you tell us about that transition from like the single channel to the, to the multi-channel? Yeah, for sure. So, so there was really, there were two kind of like epiphany moments or whatever. And one was um, in 2007, I was doing a tour where I'd booked a bunch of shows up and down the East Coast. I was going to be on the road for 30 or 40 shows in a row, um, going all the way from Florida up to Canada and back. And uh, the very first night in Wilmington, North Carolina, um, I had this film, TPTX Dance, which is made on a laser printer. And um, there's a there's a positive and negative version of the same film. And I, for some reason, had both of them on tour with me. And I wondered what it would be like to close the show by, I always had two projectors, two 16 projectors with me. Um, one for projecting while I was rewinding another one or threading the other thing. and. Um, I thought I'd just close the show by projecting the positive and negative at the same time. And it was so awesome. It was like CinemaScope. It was like the two projectors because film projectors never run at exactly the same speed. And so they started to drift out of sync with each other. And so what was happening musically in one channel was suddenly syncopated with this other thing. And it was just like, I just felt like the Stargate opened and I was like, Oh, this is, this is something. This is like, this is no longer just going because at that point I'd been touring a little bit, you know, less ambitiously than that. And, you know, frequently I was getting questioned like, Oh, why not just put these all up on YouTube? Um, and it really answered that question. It was really like, Oh, this is something special. And this is something that can only happen right now. And it's going to be different from night to night. And that, um, yeah, that just felt really different. And so that got me wanting to kind of experiment more with that. And then, um, a couple of years later, I got offered, um, or I was asked what I would do in a planetarium. And there was a show at the Museum of Arts and Sciences in Macon, Georgia. And so a friend asked me to do a thing for it. And I wanted to do something with found footage. And I knew I wanted to do something about space. And I knew I wanted to use this archive of film. So I, I had collected about, at that point, about 4,000. Maybe at that point, it was only like 3,000 16 millimeter films. Um, a couple big donations, a couple big chunks of stuff, 2000 from the old teaching collection at Florida, a bunch from a friend in Jacksonville who actually moved to Duluth, Minnesota to run Zinema, if anybody knows that place. I don't know, you're in Minnesota, right? But hmm. um, Oh, wait, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, in Duluth, yeah. Uh -huh. um, so, um, so I had that whole archive and there were so many great educational films about space. But I also wanted to do some darkroom stuff with abstraction and making loops. Um, and so that piece, I, the shape of it was determined by, there were three built-in video projections um, at the planetarium. And so I was going to take advantage of those and do some remixes of another artist's work um, that was space-themed. And then I wanted to have more 16 projectors than I had, than I had video. So I build it out for four 16 projectors. And then I, I, a friend from, uh, was in Copenhagen and sent me a Super 8 uh, film. It was a print of, a, of an East German animated film called The Drunk Sun. And it was just a perfect, weird children's film with the sun gets drunk and refuses to go to bed and the kids are chasing it around and they finally slip its sleeping pills and it goes to bed. 
anyway, so I had all that stuff and went to that show thinking, I have no idea if this will work. I, I had never projected it before. I projected it for an audience. Um, and I thought this would probably be the only time I ever do this. And it's great. It's fun, whatever. But the response from that audience was so crazy. It was like they basically carried me out of the room on their shoulders. <laughs> and so I was just like, all right, I'm kinda, I kind of screwed myself. I've got to do this now forever. And so I took that version of it um, and made a kind of theatrical version of it that I took on tour in 2009. And then I retooled it and got rid of all the video and just made it for 16. And, and I did that for a, show, for a tour in 2011. Um, so yeah, that was really, really the one where I was like, okay, you know, at some point it had eight projectors. I think I've scaled it down now. So it uses six or seven, depending on how luxuriously, I, how, how slow I want to go. It, it takes some of the pressure off if I have an extra 16 projector. But um, anyway, so that was the real moment where I was like, oh, this is a thing. And, and I found a I found a thing to explore. And so sound film was specifically about showing this one. So that one, I didn't do anything with the audio. I have a single audio track that I play throughout and just kind of, you know, I do all the sort of projecting to that score. Um, but sound film, someone asked me about that piece called Last Light of a Dying Star. And someone asked me on tour, like, hey, why aren't you doing the same thing at the level of sound that you're doing at the level of image? It seems like you're just pressing spacebar on your computer and playing this digital track. And so I really took that as a challenge to what would it be like to actually ride the volume knobs and live mix the soundtracks from a bunch of 16 millimeter educational films and maybe abstract things, you know, that would have their own kind of sonic world. Um, and so, yeah, that's what, that's where sound film came out of was really directly out of being challenged by an audience member and, <laughs> And thinking like, no, this guy's right. And what would that be like? And would it kill me to do it? Yeah. So. It's funny, that question of would it kill you? Like, um, I, so in this class, if we were able to still meet in person, um, I usually have the last project be some kind of expanded cinema piece. And, um, and I do think it feels really special, you know, to, to have these kind of organic relationships between different projectors or sounds. Um, and I also, based on a few times that I've tried to do something with more than one, more than a single channel piece, um, it also feels very like stressful and, and it seems like maybe takes a toll, like, you know, driving across the country with seven projectors or eight projectors and having to do all that set up and tear down and, I don't know, is there anything, so it's like you're working so much harder to to present a film that way than if it was a file. For sure, <laughs> yeah. No, I, I have a lot to say about that, but I'll see if I can condense it. Um, you know, I, I, for six years I dated a, a dancer and, you know, one of the conversations we had was about how the great thing about film is like, you don't have to be there to do it. You know, it's always seemed tragic to me that she would do so much work to choreograph a piece and to work with all these dancers. And then there would be like a handful of shows at the end of all that. And I would think, oh man, like this sort of, it's like, I wish this was like recordable and it, you could send it off to 
screen in Moscow or whatever. And that was like the luxury of film, right? Mm-hmm. But then I also, I think I, I, I perversely like have turned my film back into something more akin to dance about a kind of bodily performance. Um, but, and I've done that because of the specialness of it, right? Because of the eventness of it, because of the kind of importance of being physically present while this thing is produced and feeling like it could go wrong and feeling like when it doesn't go wrong, a miracle has happened, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, it, 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 it comes with all those downsides of like, I mean, when I go on tour, like my hands get so crazy calloused from the uh, projector stands I use where twisting the things over. My hands are just disgusting by the end of a tour. You know, uh, you know, I did 20 hours of driving over one weekend in the fall to do two shows. I got back and my neck and back were just destroyed, you know. Um, I mean, I don't mean to like make it sound too heroic, but you know, it definitely was like, it, it definitely is physical in a way that is not always fun, but it is fun to feel like necessary to your films. It is really great to feel like you're not bored when you, you know, hit space bar and are just waiting for the thing to be over so you can start the Q and A. You know, it's, it really like, it keeps me engaged with my own films in a way that I don't think I would be if I just made single channel work on video um, or even single, single channel work on film you know, where I know I have a 15 minute film that I don't show very much because I just get bored of waiting for it to be, I'm like, I've seen this a hundred times. I don't need to see it again. And, you know, I, you know, I'm not going to walk outside and smoke a cigarette or something, you know, but, um, so I, yeah, I'm glad I have found this path, but I did fantasize, you know, when making Amazonia as a single channel piece, you know, or I, I realized they would have a, possibility circulate in a different kind of way and I was excited about that too I was excited after having committed to this touring multi-projector thing for a while it would be nice to have a thing and it's actually been great during this lockdown you know that screened at some virtual festivals and um yeah that couldn't have happened you know I did have um a multi-projector performance at the Museum of the Moving Image uh, in New York that was canceled right at the start of the of the shutdown, and that was really really sad. You know, it was really sad to to lose that opportunity, and that's the thing I can't do until until the world opens up again. So, I think that I I'm still committed to that, but I'm really glad I have something relatively new that can enjoy this other form of of going out in the world. Yeah, I wondered about that with Amazonia. It's it's so contained, you know, like, and uh, I wondered if that felt okay after well, I mean, after the I, kind of I, I, explosiveness of the of the multi-channel work. No, and I mean, yeah, definitely the 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 computer desktop or whatever is there. There's a rigid geometry to it, and I do like in the cinema space that like if I do one or two or three projectors. I mean, it can expand and contract your sense of the playing field, right? Um, but I did try to harness some of the logic of the multi-projector performance in the way I'm using the desktop space, these different arrays of these tiled images, and you know, also sort of alluding then to our kind of multi-window space. I mean, I can't imagine how many tabs I have open in my browser right now, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, so, 
I, I want it to be in dialogue at least a little bit with the energy of the multi-projector, but I do feel like it, it feels sort of, yeah, contained in a way and, and, and a little bit canned, right? Like it's my voice, but it's my voice recorded. It's this, it's actually a recording of a performance, you know, like each of those chunks. I mean, I have edits in between the bigger chunks, but I would do, you know, five or eight minutes at a time where I'm opening all those windows on the fly where I'm like, I know the timing of this. I'm swiping to get the new desktop screen out, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, it still doesn't, you, you know, live on tape is not live. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, that's one of the things that's really intriguing to me about the genre of desktop documentary is that there is, there is this performance element, it seems like, and you can't necessarily see the cuts when there's some, when, you know, when somebody stops it and, cuts on a something opening or whatever um but it does it seems like there's still room for performance there of you know manipulating what's on the screen and and talking my um, first attempt at showing that thing i tried to do it live I, <laughs> I did it live i guess i mean i somehow got through the text at least but yeah so i was literally opening each window and it was disastrous. It was so slow and clumsy and belabored. And I, I apologize to everyone who was in the audience at the Wexner Center for that screening. But um, I wanted it to have that. And um, I'm, I'm thinking about reverse engineering a kind of live-ish version where I'll do at least the voiceover live while using the recordings of the, using the screen recordings and see, see if that feels like an interesting middle ground to return to for future tours. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, I'm curious, like, so if, if expanded cinema is kind of like a genre of experimental film, um, a subgenre or whatever, um, do you feel like you, how do you feel like you fit into that? Like, were you on the early end of that trend? Or, I mean, I'm not trying to denigrate it as a trend or anything, but um, is there anything you can or want to say that kind of situates that? Because, and the reason I'm asking is because I feel like it's a little bit harder to get a sense of that world just because you have to be there, right? Like, so you, I don't know who's doing expanded cinema in Paris right now because they they're not doing it here they're doing it there um can you so can you say anything about that landscape or that community or that um I guess that genre in general yeah I mean obviously like the term expanded cinema dates back you know I mean decades right so predates my like attempts to 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 kind of move in that direction um but, you know, sort of more immediately when I started doing it, I, you know, I was aware of Bruce McClure, but I don't think I'd ever seen him perform. You know, I knew uh, Sandra Gibson and Lewis Recoder um, and and had, had seen some of their expanded work, maybe only in documentation. I don't know that I actually had seen one in person. Um, yeah, so I, I guess I felt like I was a little bit making up out of whole cloth, even though like I think in retrospect now it kind of resonates with other stuff that was going on. But I do think you're right to say there's been a real like explosion of interest in it. And, you know, even if you're not in a place to see it, like look at the microscope gallery listings, look at, you know, um, they did, they've done a 
ton of it over the past, I would say, three, four years. Um, so many of the screenings they do now, you know, have at least one expanded performance. And, you know, I, I do think it maybe is one of these symptoms of like, you know, theatrical viewing fighting for its life, you know, like, like the widescreen formats of the 50s when TV was challenging, you know. Um, I mean, that eventness does seem like a thing. But I do also, I've kind of joked that we're at peak expanded cinema, you know, there is a danger of it becoming such the new normal that it no longer feels special, right? Um, that eventness is is premised on a little bit the singul singularity of it. But like you said, like, you know, seeing European, you know, expanded cinema performers, it's 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 a hard thing to do. It's a rare opportunity. You know, I, I got to go to a um a artist run film lab um kind of meeting in Nantes in France um a handful of years ago. And man, I saw so many great performances. There were so many great groups of people doing really incredible stuff that just really like filled my mind with with cool ideas. And same, you know, I I, I was in London doing a show, I don't know, eight years ago or something. And just it was a group show, and everyone on the on the program that night was just so great. And and doing stuff that I hadn't thought of at all and didn't know was possible. And you just wouldn't know. I mean, you can look at their websites. I mean, you, you all saw a documentation of, you know, one of my pieces and maybe you have some sense of it from, from that. But um, yeah, it's, it, that's definitely one of the downsides too, is that like this stuff is going to be part of very local histories and it's going to be a question of like, how does this stuff survive? How does, how is it talked about, you know, when it, you know, when the performers aren't performing anymore, when there's no trace of it or, or these sort of, you know, documentations only. Um, I don't know, I'm really, I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see how this plays out, but I, I'm still committed to the works even if they're ephemeral, you know, I'm committed to them even if all that survives is a kind of documentation. I've kind of joked about training an understudy so that when my, when my back and neck are finally bad enough, I can get someone else to, Hop in, hop in there, you know, it won't be a Prius then or Tesla or whatever, right? And, and take them on the road for me. But um, I, I mean, I know there are people who are doing, you know, recreations of kind of expanded cinema works. I mean, I've done you know, the Hollis Frampton lecture, um, for example, mm -hmm. um, where, you know, which is instructions for a projector performance, um, a kind of very simple projector performance. So I mean, maybe there will be interest in, in in performing these. I know there's they do that in the dance world, right? They you know revisit you know restage kind of classic performances. So if there's enough kind of notation or documentation left behind, um, but yeah, but there is the danger of it also again becoming coming the new normal and becoming kind of its own kind of boring. Um, so hope, yeah. at that point, I think maybe you just have to be really good at it, right? <laughs> so you can't rely on just being like, ooh, lots of projectors. It's like lots of projectors and they're doing some pretty cool things. And so hopefully, hopefully enough of us will take it seriously enough to, you know, to deliver the goods. I feel like it's, you get into that labor question there too, where if you like pay somebody to take your films on the road and, you know, train them to when to start each projector like i don't know like that on one end can be a beautiful thing and on another hand it's like is it the real thing anymore you know if it's not roger doing it like 
like it you don't get that connection right like that's if the point is the kind of the thereness of it the the specialness of like like we're here together tonight um then the i mean i like the when you said the understudy thing i was like oh yeah you could totally like show somebody how to do it and then they could do it and then i was like wait a minute does that work I'm not sure. Would it be like seeing Led Zeppelin with, with John Bonham's kid playing the drums or whatever? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like a cover band. Yeah, yeah. The Roger Beebe cover. I, well, fortunately, I don't have any um, delusions of grandeur about that. And I'm, I'm okay if these, things, if these things go to the grave with me. Um, I mean, I've really enjoyed sharing them. And I've really liked the kinds of engagements, you know, that, that they've produced. But yeah, I'm not... Um, I'm not really thinking about posterity in that kind of way about them. Um, yeah. I think, I mean, I think one of the things that feels interesting about that, about expanded cinema is that it frees you from that idea of like, this film will outlive me, you know, like you don't have to, you don't have to carry that burden of, of like a hundred years from now, it'll still be on Vimeo, you know, or whatever. Whatever they have. Well, the art world tried to tried to have that similar kind of revolution with you know happenings and stuff like that, and you know perversely you know the art world has found a way to kind of extract value from those things and preserve them in a way that like is both great and and terrible, right? Like I, I remember seeing um, the Yoko Ono show at at SF MoMA, and um, yeah, there was you know like one of the pieces was an apple that you could take a bite out of except it was behind glass, right? Or a canvas that you were, you could hammer a nail into. And again, behind glass or the ladder that supposedly John Lennon, you know, went up, walked up to the top of it and you get to the top and there's a little, um, it just says yes at the top. And supposedly that's what John Lennon, you know, when he fell in love with Yoko was from experiencing that piece, but you couldn't get on the ladder, right? Um, so there are those ways in which, um, yeah, attempts, the things that we think are ephemeral and that will not, um, be preserved or not preservable. I think there are ways in which we may be surprised um, how, how history decides to do these things. I feel like I'm curious about your thoughts. Like one thing that still feels unique about experimental film is how hard it seems to be to commodify or like, um, you know, when you talk about the art world, like finding a way, it seems like, that I don't know if it hasn't happened yet or if it's just like not popular enough to be you know worth the effort or I don't know I'm yeah. curious about your thoughts on that subject I mean I think it's one of the great things about experimental film but it it can also be a limitation right like it would be nice for people to be able to pay their bills you know however modestly um, from doing this kind of thing and not have to have a side hustle you know, not have to drive a cab or, you know, work for IBM or whatever, um, or as many of us do teach, right? So mm -hmm. it would be nice to be able to kind of sustain yourself by making this work. And, you know, the art market does it completely in the wrong way with this kind of like very like big superstar culture and a big gap between those people and, and regular working artists. I mean, I really do like that there's a kind of like a leveling that happens in experimental film where, you know, the mountaintop is not that high. And it's like, <laughs> you go to festivals and you are just a normal person like everyone else. And uh, I really appreciate that. And I really do think like the stakes are so low, you know, like, you know, okay, so if you're lucky, you get a Guggenheim and that is like 
a very nice year where you don't have to work. And then you get one of those in a lifetime. And so like, you know, some people get them and some people don't. And it's, again, it's a wonderful thing that it happens for those people, but it's not like you quit your job and you move to, you know, move <laughs> to Paris or whatever. Uh -huh. um, yeah. And so I really do. It's again, it's, it's, it, it makes it all less dirty. You know, there's not as much like, you know, need to schmooze or you're not looking over your, you know, everyone's shoulder to see where the important person is in the room. Cause nobody's that important in an experimental film, but, um, but yeah. Um, I mean, I will say that like the tours have been a reliable, like they pay for themselves and that's always felt like a good thing. And, you know, at least according to my taxes one year, I made, all of $12,000. That was my, my, my best year ever, you know, making experimental films, showing experimental films. Wow. And $12,000 is, re it's, it's money. But again, like, you know, um, good thing I'm a single person and good thing, you know, I don't have a mortgage to pay or, a, you know, whatever college loans to be paying off and whatever, if I'm making 12 grand a year mm -hmm. in a good year. Um, that, so I want, we we uh we generally keep these to about an hour but i do want to um and that's you know that's for uh just partly because zoom is weirdly exhausting i feel like and i don't want to overtax uh any of us um but i did want to be sure to have a chance to talk about lineage um the norman mclaren film and yeah. i feel like it it maybe kind of ties in here. Um, I'm glad you shared that one. I found it really beautiful and kind of had like this really nice minimalist quality to it um, that just worked through the different layers of like looking at Norman McLaren's work, looking at him, the kind of composition with the, the four projectors there. Um, and then actually the conversation about the professional artist or the professional uh, experimenter. Um, I'm, so, so I'm just curious, you know, if you could say a little bit about how that project came together and if you felt like there was resonance between what he was doing and what you were trying to do about him or I don't know, there was, uh, what no, was I think, I mean, I, you know, I'm, I teach McLaren regularly. I really, I think like he opened so many possibilities for cinema. Um, I mean, some of the films feel like, I think in terms of our spirits, like he is a much gentler soul than I am. Um, I think some of the sort of more aggressive textures in here feel very not McLaren, um, but I'm still happy that like, I think part of it was I was generating a lot of material with these different techniques of using the laser cutter and doing all this sort of lion animation. And, you know, it was definitely thinking of M McLaren's, um, you know, lines horizontal. Um, but I knew I was doing things sonically that, yeah, again, were kind of aggressive and, and abstract and whatever that again, felt very different from McLaren, which, you know, tends to be much more musical and much more kind of playful and, um, but it was actually having these two McLaren documentaries that really somehow still structured it for me. You know, one from much earlier in his career and one from, you know, much later. Um, and somehow um, those gave this 
film a little pathos or something that um you know it roots it just in sort of this sort of technical discussion but at the end where he's unable to animate his health is failing and i don't know it felt to me tonally like it gave it an arc that it didn't have otherwise and you know i have him appear in the sort of um the sort of complicated um it's it was bipacked contact printing in the center where i was using the lines as a mask for some of that footage and so I wanted him not just to be bookends, but to, to kind of reappear to remind you, like this is sort of anchored in an homage to him. Um, but yeah, then a lot of it was really, it's like giving myself an excuse to play technologically and sonically and, and just see like, okay, if I render this line as a vector, how is it gonna work versus if I, if I cut it as a raster? Right, and so the raster is actually much more dotty and sounds much more staticky. And the vector has a kind of like it's a little um, bacony. It's got a little like boat, but it feels much smoother still. And and the line it produces is tonally clearer. And so I mean, there's all sorts of stuff like that where I would feel like there's a decadence to just doing that. And so somehow McLaren and those two documentaries and that footage. Um, pulls me out of that world of just like, here's a bunch of shapes that make some noise. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, there was something, yeah, I don't know. I found it really um, kind of moving just to, to, to see him and to see the, the uh, kind of the abstraction emerges from him and then he, kind of dissolves into the abstraction at the end, like. Well, interestingly, so, it, it, you know, I, I, the the loops that I use at the end, I initially, those were failed loops. And I went back and read them clean and like, you know, had really nice, dense, positive images. And then I performed it just once that way. And I was like, oh, it's terrible when these are good images. They actually need to be, like falling apart at that time. The images need to be doing, the images themselves need to be ghosting and stuff in the way that we're sort of anticipating McLaren's, you know, death or, you know, his his decline or whatever. And so it was weird to me to realize that pathos was about actually having screwed up in the dark room. Hmm. Um, but I do think like I'm I'm terrible in the dark room in terms of being super precise and you know, getting the temperatures exactly right and and the timing exactly right. And I do hope I can turn that into a virtue when I make <laughs> discoveries, when things happen that are like, that surprise me. I mean, maybe it's like, you know, the, what we were saying about Strip Mall Trilogy of having a plan and then like still wanting there to be surprises and still wanting there to be a looseness within that and and not just, you know, executing this kind of mathematical, which the lines on their own would have been, right? Mm-hmm. That's good to hear actually, because I'm I'm very messy in the dark room too. And so like when people are very meticulous in the dark room, like I kind of envy that and I feel like that will never be me. So so I appreciate it. Well your David Gatton was the person who taught me how to how to hand process film. And it was so wonderfully disarming to see how little he seemed to know. Um, I mean, his films are so beautiful and so masterful and so delicate. And you think 
And then I was like, you know, we were shooting film to go hand process. And I was like, well, what ASA do we read it at? And he was like, oh, I don't know, 8, 12, 20. Here, let's just open and close the aperture and, <laughs> you know, something will turn out. And uh, so that was so great for me because I think I had a mental block about it where I was thinking, oh, no, you have to like use a thermometer and, you know, like use these measuring vials. And, and now it's kind of like, I oh, just slop it in there, and, you know. <laughs> And like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not that bad at it, but I just definitely, I feel I'm not going to open my own lab anytime soon, you know. What was the name of that filmmaker? I didn't quite catch. David Gatton. Gatton? Yeah. Uh, I don't think he has any kind of web presence, but uh, okay. I mean, he, he, um, here we go. Um, but yeah, he teaches at, uh, at Boulder. Um, oh, okay. And uh, he he's he made just an incredible series of black and white films. He went to school at the Institute of Chicago and taught for a while at, at Ithaca College. And um, yeah, was a regular at the at the Views from the Avant Garde at the New York Film Festival. And he just made these really beautiful uh, series of films about this bird family and their library. And anyway, there's got to be information about him somewhere. I know that the Wexner Center. Um, before I got here, coordinated a, a retrospective of his work, and so there's probably stuff floating around from that that um, that could give you some sense of who he is. But cool. Um, uh, well, that I mean, we covered a lot of ground here, and um, and I I feel like. I'm glad actually I was going to, I was going to do talk about lineage in the middle and Amazonia at the end, but I feel like ending uh, with the portrait of Norman McLaren makes a lot of sense um, structurally for our conversation. So we can, let's call it a night, but, um, but again, thank you so much, Roger. This was really wonderful. Um, It's good to talk to you. It's been, it's been a few years since you came through town and um, I hope we can get you back here in person sometime in the next few years. If you, hit I, the- I would love to do it. You know, again, I got to figure out what the schedule makes sense for my 11 and a half hour drive. But yeah, I had such a great time when I was last there and I would really love to do it again. If you'd like to support this podcast and the artists that we feature, please subscribe at patreon.com backslash cellular cinema all proceeds from subscriptions go to the guest artists thank you very much